From the Soul of Shame, page 177. All that we do, parenting, pastoring, farming, playing basketball, carpentry, police work, structural engineering, is done in response to love and shame competing for our attention, wrestling for authority over our memory, emotion, sensations, and behaviors. These two dominant affective forces of the universe represent the struggle between good and evil. Within each of us, these two affective states, represented by the presence of the Holy Spirit on one side and our shame attendant on the other, are at war over us and the culture we are making. The Spirit echoes the voice of our Father, telling us that we are His daughters and sons, His daughters and sons, whom He loves and is well-pleased. Our shame attendant reminds us in large and small ways that every function of our mind, let alone who we are as a whole, is not enough and has been abandoned. This war occurs in every realm of embodied life. Sometimes the story we tell ourselves is not really true. Sometimes the story others tell about us is not really true. Here on today's Heart Lift with Janelle, we are going to learn how to rewrite our story. So pick up your favorite pen and journal, grab a cup of something delicious, and start your heart-lifting journey towards living a meaningful life. Welcome to today's Heart Lift with Janelle. I am really over the moon today, and I'm going to try so hard to contain my exuberance, which all of you know is pretty dang hard for me. <laughs> I'm going to try to put on the professional girl, oh, maybe not, and, and just contain my absolute humility and thanks and gratitude that we are welcoming to our podcast today, Dr. Kurt Thompson. He is a psychiatrist. Let me read all the goodies because no. he's amazing. Yes, I will. <laughs> he brings together a dialect of interpersonal. This is the most important, you guys. I want you to lean in here because I know many of you probably have not really ever heard of perhaps this realm of neurology, interpersonal neurobiology, known as IPNB, and a Christian anthropology to educate and encourage others as they seek to fulfill their intrinsic desire to feel known, valued, and connected. And that's what we, Kurt, are all about here in our Stronger Everyday community. He understands that deep, authentic relationships are essential to experiencing, yeah, a healthier, more purposeful life. But the only way to realize this is to begin telling our stories more truly. Okay, so I'll stop there because I could go on for hours, but I won't because I want to value our time. Mm. And welcome, Dr. Kurt Thompson. May I call you Kurt? Or oh, please, Doctor. Janelle. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this, Janelle, it's really a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. As I said, it's, it's humbling to be invited to come and join you and glad for our listeners to be part of this and look forward to the next moments that we have to share together. 
Thank you so, so much. So oh, I yes. asked you beforehand, I wanted you to just get kind of up close and personal with us because what yeah. I love is that in our community, we, we really value story and mm. we value creating safe spaces in our lives and being safe people to be able to listen as an empathic listener to those mm. who God brings into our sphere of influence. And I certainly feel mm. that way as a therapist, but I also feel that way as a human being that I want to be someone in the world that creates safe places and safe spaces and have a safe face. And so we both, I thought this was really amazing as I reread The Anatomy of Soul, which was your first book, which I devoured in 2010, but have re-devoured it over and over again as I have gone through my personal growth journey. But we both have a revelatory Mother's Day story at the very beginning. Mine is later on in the book, in my book, Stronger Every Day. It's about our moms and it's about being in the hospital on Mother's Day. So I didn't know if you might read for us that beginning story in your book, Anatomy of the Soul. Yeah. Uh, if you would mind reading that or I can. Would you prefer me to? Because I have the book right here. <laughs> I, I don't have I don't have the book in front of me. I, okay, I'm, so good. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Don't be sorry. It's all good. Yeah. And it's highlighted so much. Just for everyone watching in video. Yes. And I totally, yeah. Yours was Mother's Day 2004. Mine mm. was Mother's Day 2018. And I think mm. that they're both so highly relevant. Mm. So it's a little bit long, but I think it's vital. The hospital room was bright but sterile. It was Mother's Day 2004. And I sat at the foot of the bed of the woman who had given birth to me. My 86-year-old mother appeared drained and listless, moving little except her eyes. Her voice was weaker than usual, a reflection of her general physical deterioration. While I was attending a medical conference the week before, my brother had called to tell me that our mother's health was quickly declining. What was most concerning, he said, was her resignation that life was over. She seemed to have no interest in surviving, let alone thriving. In the days between my brother's phone call and this visit, my wife <laughs> had remarked that my response to my mother's illness seemed to vacillate between distant clinical indifference and unmitigated anger. I insert here, I just always love the voice, right, of the wise person in our life, the one who knows us so yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I'd been terse in my replies to my wife's queries about my mother's condition and was certainly not forthcoming with my actual feelings. Here I was, an experienced, successful psychiatrist, a physician trained in the science and art of healing, yet, and I asterisk this, yes, I struggled to offer my mother support. Not going to lie, insert, I felt a lot better after I read this again. <laughs> I was a follower of Jesus, yet I was finding it virtually impossible to gather even a mustard seed's worth of compassion for her. How dare my mother give up? How dare she be so passive as she sometimes was? That's important. Which reinforced the distressing emotional undercurrents that ran through our family. I insert again, Kurt, because... So many, I know that you probably understand this, and so many of us have that mother, that mother wound. And so I just, I know, I know so many in my community do. And so that's why I really just wanted to bring this to the forefront today. We were skilled at maintaining the illusion we were well, when in fact we were, in some respects, rather ill. 
It's very telling and very, very vital to where I believe so many of us are, especially within the body of Christ, that we are so skilled at maintaining the illusion. And these are my words, not Kurt's, I'm adding. When in fact, we are in many respects rather ill. Kurt writes, my mother's apathy reactivated my sense of inadequacy and of being alone in the world. I could find little solace even in my spiritual experience. And that was very important to me too. Not in prayer, he writes, not in scripture, not in my deep and meaningful friendships. My mother was easing toward death and seemed not to care how I felt about it. She was fragile, but in my fear, aloneness, powerlessness, and anger, I didn't feel much compassion for her plight. Your story, it moves me every single time because it echoes my own, but I know it echoes, I mean, probably thousands of people, if not more. So I just wondered if you would be willing, Kurt, to share with us a little bit about that journey that you went on with your mother and how it led you into really, I think, the work you're doing today on many levels. Well, you know, Janelle, I'll, I'll back up just a moment and say okay. at that medical conference where I was a week before I got that phone call from my brother, I think, you know, I was I was sitting in this half-day conference with Dan and mm. I Dr. knew by the, end of, <laughs> by, the, by the end of that, by the end of that half-day conference, I wasn't sure what or how, but I knew something was changing and I wasn't going to be the same after that. But I really wow. couldn't, I, I would say it was something that I felt, it was kind of sitting somewhere in my lower brain. It hadn't worked its way all the way to my prefrontal cortex yet, where I could yeah. put words to it or comprehend what was going on. Yeah. And I would say further that my experience in that hospital room was yet one more experience that was further launching me into this path of trying to pay attention to things that I had never paid attention to, awakening to things that wow. I didn't know I didn't know. And so, as I wrote in the book, the whole notion of a number of the things that had we'd covered in that medical conference not just a week ago were starting to tumble through my mind even as I'm sitting there in the room with my mom. And... Mm we started to recount some stories that she had recounted literally dozens of times with yeah. me in the past. And I think that I had, because in, in some respects, I played the role of an emotional advocate for her in our own home. I played a role that probably was not good. It was, it was never intended for me to play. Yes. And there were certain elements that whether I knew it or not, I probably resented that. I probably mm -hmm. didn't like the burden of that. Didn't know what to do with that. Yeah. Was irritated at that. Yeah. And I think for the first time, I had a glimpse of what it meant to be compassionate with someone. Mm. Wow. That's in a way that I hadn't, I'd never really been able to be genuinely so with mm. her before. And really mm. coming more viscerally in touch with how it was that this woman who, you know, was my mom and who I was having, you know, I was irritated with her. Like, why is she just going to kind of like roll over and die? Yeah. Also kind of being reintroduced in that hospital room to the reality of what, of the, of the fact that she was an orphan growing up. Right. That was and, and, what was so pivotal to me was that you had finally that awakened in you that, wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
And of course, this really having a lot to do with attachment issues yes. and discovering that, you know, I mean, and th these weren't these weren't principles in the abstract that I was unfamiliar with, the whole notion that she'd done the best that she could. I mean, I'd been in training. I mean, I'd like, I, I, I got it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, these things made sense. Here. But they, they, right, they were, they were making sense in my left hemisphere, but they weren't really right. working their way literally into my body yet. Right. And I would say that that time in the hospital with her was what I would consider to be, you know, if you're going to the moon, you have a Saturn V rocket and it has multiple stages and you yeah. need the first, stage, but the first stage doesn't get you to the moon. You need other additional stages. Right. And I think that for me, that conversation was like the first stage of that Saturn V rocket. There have been multiple stages since then. It's been now 17 years uh, right. since that day, since, since that took place. And there have been multiple stages since then because what felt like an awakening at the time, it's one thing for your alarm to go off. Mm -hmm. yes. And now I'm awake. It's another thing for me to have been like fully showered and dressed yeah, and perfect. getting, getting Great. from my bed yes. to, to my desk at work. Like I, like when I move away from my bed, that's not like moving away, like to my office. Like no. I'm not as, I'm not yet as awake. No, no, no. And, mm -hmm. uh, so distance. I think, right. There was an alarm clock that was going off and I was now awake to things and I was making my way to the shower. Yes. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I was as fully awake even as I am now. And I would say even even literally in the last month, in the last two months, there have been other passages that I have passed through mm -hmm. in which I, you know, thanks be to God, I believe, you know, thank you, you know, for mm -hmm. his patience in bringing me yet through other gates of mm -hmm kind of making this real of living as if I can really forgive her. And because I, I've, I've had a lot of work to do in the last 17 years mm -hmm. after, you know, that alarm clock went off um, yes. in that hospital room. So let's pause here. Let's take a moment to think a little bit deeper about what Kurt is sharing with us here concerning awakening. Awakening is a process. To awaken something is to rouse it from sleep. And this awakening in our lives emotionally, spiritually, mentally, it will come in stages. Just like Kurt described to us, it'll come in layers. Healing happens in layers. Ultimately, forgiving someone takes time. And I think we often forget that in our healing journey. We want it to be over. We want it to just someone to wave that magic wand and it's all gone. It's all done. It's, all, it's just all better. But finding our way home to our essence, to our God-breathed selves, especially in the realm of complicated relationships, and even deeper in those complicated relationships, either with a mother or a father or both, or your earliest caregiver, that can be really difficult. I get it. You know how I get it. And I love how he shares how he awakened in that 
that medical conference. And then he awakened again inside of that hospital room. And how even up to two months ago, he was still in his awakening process and finding his way to really forgiving his mother. This is a process. He's still on the journey. I'm still on the journey. And I know you might say, when will this journey be over? Well, this is just the process of being known. Coming home to wholeness. He writes in Anatomy of the Soul, My history, as I had understood it up to this Mother's Day, had been influenced by being my mother's support. My father, as good a man as he was, was not always able to connect with my mother emotionally, especially when she was anxious. At those times, I tried to buffer her emotional distress. Actually, although I wasn't conscious of my motivation as a child, I comforted her to reduce my own anxiety. If she was okay, then I would be okay. No matter how hard I tried, however, I couldn't do enough to enable her to comfort me. So in the end, I determined I could depend only on myself. As I listened to my dying mother and felt compassion for her welling within me, my self-understanding was also changing. It wasn't just what I logically comprehended. That's that left brain hemisphere he was talking about about the facts of my life, but what I felt, that would be right brain, while I sat there in the room. That was another awakening, I'm adding this. I could physically feel a change. Not only did I see my mother with new eyes, I felt her life. And I felt my own differently. As if the proverbial scales had fallen from my eyes, I saw that she had not simply chosen to live her life the way she had. She had done the best she could without anyone to attend to her heart. Remember, his mother was orphaned at three. To her emotional states, to her distresses and hopes, her anxiety, fear, and passivity were not intentional They were her coping strategy. Beginning at age four, she had developed strategies to ensure she didn't tick anyone off. And this eventually included God. It was the only way she knew to ward off the overwhelming feelings of desertion, which we now would call, I'm adding here, trauma, childhood trauma. And she had maintained this defensive posture into adulthood. She had not actively chosen this path, but rather had reacted unconsciously. In other words, her timidity and caution became the default neurological firing pattern that shaped her mind. And that, my dear heartlifters, is why I wanted to take pause here. That one sentence, part C of that sentence, her timidity and caution became the default neurological firing pattern that shaped her mind. Here in this hallelujah message, 
just as we are in this season of resurrection power in our Christian tradition, take some time, pause, find your way into some stillness, silence, and solitude. Perhaps find a small community, a safe space, a safe person. Safest of all, who is God? Sit with him. I'm looking outside my window now at a beautiful tree that's blooming. I I just want to sit in the lush grass. I want to sit under the shade of that tree. And I want to think about my default neurological firing patterns that shaped my mind in my early childhood and make sure that I am paying heed and paying attention and making sure that I have in place tools, practices, people, communities that will help me rewire and refire healthy, 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 healthy patterns so that I can live and move the rest of my life with a healthy mind, a healthy heart, and a healthy soul. So when you were sitting, uh, I'm so curious, when you were sitting in that medical conference and Dan Se- Dr. Dan Siegel was speaking, he was mm-hmm. leading. What was that? Like what like it put, can you put me there? Can you put us there? Ooh, like well, inside well, of your body, like what's that going on inside? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I was able to put this in more helpful language uh, a couple years later when I was invited to be part of one of Dan's first couple of process groups where he was training some of his first cohorts in interpersonal mm. neurobiology. Mm. And we had to articulate our understanding of what interpersonal neurobiology was. Mm. And I, I really came to discover that in medical school and in psychiatric training, the whole notion of what we're treating was made available to us because we talk about pathology. We are, physicians are really great at naming what's wrong with the world. Correct. And we come up with really helpful plans, I think, for trying to fix what's wrong. But even physicians haven't done a great job necessarily over the course of our history, let alone in psychiatry in particular, of describing and naming what health actually is. Yes. We don't talk much about what goodness and mental health is we can identify when it's wrong. That's mm-hmm. not hard to do. And so, you know, as long as I'm not having chest pain, I think I'm healthy, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. As long as I'm not having panic attacks, I would say, yes, I'm emotionally pretty healthy. As long as I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, drinking a six pack every other day, I'm- mm-hmm. I'm uh, functioning, I'm functioning well. Right, right. And, and I think that we find this to be the case. I mean, the rich young ruler, for instance, I mean, this was a cat who mm. like had everything together. I mean, he was functioning on all eight pistons. And of course he comes to Jesus with this question and asks how many more, like what other pistons can I put in my engine to get then into the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. And Jesus is saying like, I want you to turn your engine off. Wow. Wow. The whole notion that I want to fix things, the whole notion that I need to see my, my myself as a problem, of course, is a function of shame to begin with. Because one of the things that shame tells us is that it, it helps us, it facilitates my seeing the world through a lens of it and me being a problem that needs to be solved. But of course, like I'm the ever unsolvable problem. Like there's never <laughs> going to be enough time for no. me to be solved no. because 
with everything I fix, there's just 10 more things that I discover that I need. You know, I, I, yes. I tell people, I'm just so glad that there are only 10 commandments. Because if there were more than that, like I like my confession really would last forever. I, I like, yeah, I'd I'd be breaking twenty commandments every day. I'm just so glad that they limited it to ten. Thank you. God. I think you could. I I I think you could have probably done it in like four or six. But would have been know, nice. Whatever. Right. But we're not God. Right. And so I I do sense that when Dan when I'm sitting in that conference with Dan, Dan was naming with like the whole premise of interpersonal neurobiology is not primarily first and foremost a framework of understanding what's wrong with our minds which is so re- it's just revelatory refreshing right. and redeeming all at the same time yeah, yeah it's a, it's a framework that ends that that begins with actually describing well what is the mind in the first place right you, you I'm in medical school and psychiatric training 8 years of training and I did not have one class, let alone one course that described like, what is the mind? Like you would be worried if you went to your orthopedic surgeon and they didn't really know what a bone was. That would be a problem. Wow. Like, why would you go to a psychiatrist if they don't know what the mind is? Oh, that's Because we haven't really done that much. Well, I mean, it's not just psychiatry, it's psychology. I mean, the the field of mental health, most folks don't have a working understanding and description Uh. and definition of what the mind actually is. Mm -hmm. The work of interpersonal neurobiology has sought to do that. But moreover, it has sought to define not just what it is, but what does it look like when it's flourishing? Yes. What does it look like? That would be the the realm of like eudaimonia, positive psychology, correct? Yes. Right. Some, and and, and from a neuro, yeah, yeah, sure. And from a neuroscience standpoint, we would say we talk about the mind in the same way that we talk about any other system in the world, living or non-living, that is flourishing. Yeah. So it's a system that is is flexible adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable, that acronym that Dan came up with of FACES. That, yes. And so we ask, and so when we can now ask patients, instead of just, well, have you had panic attacks? The answer is no. We say, well, you must be healthy because you know, you're not having panic attacks. Yeah, you're doing really you well. Right, you don't For have you. chest pain, so you must not have heart disease. <laughs> but we can ask our patients, we can say, well, let's talk about to what degree this week your life has felt flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, stable. Yes. They can, and and in so doing, in in so mm-hmm. doing, we actually do something else. I think that we're, I mean, we we know this intuitively as psychotherapists that one of the things that we are really doing in working with our patients is that we are working to fire their imagination in a new way. Mm-hmm. Would you just explain that to my beautiful listeners? Because I get it, but. I'm not sure that they all, you know, imagination is not a word, especially within the Judeo-Christian worldview that is really unpacked as well as you do it. So, well, I think, you know, you and I, we were talking before mm-hmm. we started about, about Mako Fujimura and, and, yeah. and he and I, I've had the privilege of, you know, we've become friends in the last two or three mm. years and had the chance to talk about some of these things, this notion of beauty. You know, he has this marvelous book that just came out. Art I know and I just did a podcast, but right. not with him, but yeah. About uh, Kintsugi and, yes. Yeah, right. And so this notion that we are made to make things. Yes. We are not just made to be known. We are definitely, we are made to be known, right? For the person who loves God is known by God, 1 Mm -hmm. Corinthians 8. Mm -hmm. We are known by God, but we are not just known by God just to say, oh yeah, I checked that box. Now I'm known by God. I'm known by you. I'm known by my wife, my kids, my friends. Mm We're known by people in a particular way, this way that the man and his wife were naked and unashamed in Genesis chapter two, were made in a particular way to be known in order to create beauty and goodness in the world. Yes. And that beauty and goodness is not just something that we're making, but it is something that we are striving, that we are working to become. Yes, become vital. But 
but we would say that sin and our brains and the way that they kind of dance with each other are wired in such a way that most of what I pay attention to most of the time are those emotional states that are emerging out of places of fear and shame. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the negative, so, for sure. Right, so if I'm paying attention to that, even non-consciously, if I'm paying attention to that, most of my life is built to regulate that. Most of my life is built to mm-hmm. fix that, solve that. Mm-hmm. And so, as David Wilcox, this beautiful song, he says, leave it like it is. It's this song mm-hmm. of a paint can that spills in the kitchen. And oh my God, it's disastrous, right? Like, we're, we're yes. it's just awful, right? And no, leave it like it is. Put a frame around it. And all your neighbors will just think it's wonderful. Where did you get that? How much did you pay? It's for a this? Mako creation. Right, exactly, exactly. Mako came in and just kicked he over did. a paint can of paint. Yeah, That's what he on did. the floor put in a my frame. kitchen. Yeah, yeah, we've decided this is a little different. We're not hanging it on the wall. We're just gonna put Where it on the floor. Where do I get it? How can I get right. it? Yeah, exactly. Yes. But there is this sense in which evil abhors beauty. Mm. Mm. Evil abhors, and, and, and as such, you know, when we, when we look at that, when we look at that, Mm-hmm. narrative in Genesis chapter two, evil is not just separating us from God. He's shearing off our capacity to create. Oh, please. This is, yes. And yes. so we would want to say like to the married oh. couples that come in that are coming out of their own trauma or the individuals or even the corporations or the Sunday school class or the churches or the, or whoever, the churches, right? communities, right? right? We are so cut off from our awareness that God yes. is longing for us to be outposts of beauty and goodness in the world. Yes. That the world would look at how we love one another. And this gets back to how do we tell stories and how do we tell stories mm-hmm. by revealing mm-hmm. in vulnerable ways the parts of our stories that we hate the most mm-hmm. in order for beauty to emerge out of that very place of shame. Yes. In the course of doing that, we then fulfill John 13, 35, where Jesus says, and the world will look at you and they will see how you love one another, and they'll know that you're my disciples. That's how they'll know this, that you're my mm-hmm. disciples, because of how you love one another. And it's not just that you like one another. It's not Correct. just that, like you, like you, mm-hmm. you're great. Put up yeah, with I'll each other. You, I'll pick you up from the airport anytime you want me to. Sure. It's more a matter of like, like, no, I'm gonna work out my, I'm gonna reveal to you the parts about me that I don't like. I'm also gonna like say to you the parts about you that evoke things in me that are hard. We're gonna work this out. Like we're gonna love one another. We're, gonna yeah, do we're literally going to let our skeletons come out of our closets one by one because we're in a safe space of where people are becoming known. And yes, I call it a transparency right. challenge, both to be someone in that circle who listens empathically, but also to be someone who feels safe enough. And yeah. Right. So, yeah. And I think it's important and helpful for us that when we are in that what did you call it? Your transformational what transparency challenge. Transparency challenge. When you're in that space, that what we are we are not here to fix a problem. Now, of course, yeah. I'm not saying that like we throw that language out altogether. <laughs> We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Of course, I know how to fix. It. I need to know how to fix it. Otherwise, I can't change the tire when it's flat. Right. I, I'm I, really I glad you're bringing this. this up though, because I hate it right? when people go, "Can you fix me? Can you fix that?" Right. I'm like mm, the only time I see that in the scripture is fix your eyes on Jesus right. or fix your right. eyes on the path that lies before you. Don't look to the left or right. So fix is right. never, you know, yeah. Thank you. Right. And so, and so when we are, when we, th- that whole notion of fixing a problem, like mm-hmm. treating a pathology. Yes. It presumes something that's, that's important for our listeners, I think, to pay attention to. One is that like, if I have a problem that I have to fix, it means that there is a certain way in which this thing is supposed to be. And yes. the problem now has it being a certain way that I have, so I have to bring it back to baseline. 
mm-hmm. wherever it was, I have to bring it back there. Right. And yet to create mm-hmm. is not to bring something that is broken back to baseline. It is to take that which we have and create something that has never been before. Yes. It's out. There's no baseline to which we're returning. Mm-hmm. And so when the, when the couple comes in and the marriage is really in trouble, mm-hmm. of course, there's all kinds of ways in which we're going to want to make sure that they develop a confidence and comfort with the therapist and that they feel heard and they feel that the therapist has a sense of what is actually happening. But at some point, pretty quickly in that process, I'm going to want to ask this couple, what is the next new thing you want to create with God Mm -hmm. in this marriage? What do you want to create? And of course, some couples are like, I don't like, they look at me like I have two heads. I know when I first heard you bring that, that question into the therapeutic alliance, you know, I heard you on, on another podcast and I was like, that's just brilliant. But I can imagine the gap that, that begins when, because who knows how to answer that question, create something. What are you, we're just here to fix our problems. Right. But just like raising children, I, I don't know how many of our listeners have kids who are like teenagers mm-hmm. or adults or whatever, right? A lot and, probably. Um, I said that teenager or adults, adults or whatever. I don't know. Or whatever I, don't know what they the, are. I don't know what the whatever category actually. <laughs> it's after twenty five. Like, is referring to right? Okay, but we've all had the experience. <laughs> we've all had the experience of having a conversation, you know, with our our, our kids that we're we're working through things. It's at some point, mm-hmm. right? And our kids and this for us, this usually happened in and around like teenage years where yes. we're having a conversation. They're working through something in their life, and we're talking, we're talking, and they're kind of not maybe seeing our point. Really. Right there. Oh yeah, they're, yeah, they're not saying there's not our point. They're not seeing our point. And then one day, our daughter or son, you know, they, they come home and they say, you know, mom, I was talking with Michelle, one of my wife's good friends, and she talks with Michelle about you know all the things. And Michelle, of course, makes the comment that Phyllis has been making, you know, for Forever. years, right? And my and you know, our child like talks to us as if like she's had a revelation for the first time. I know. And what do you do? And so my wife and I retreat to the bedroom and we (laughs) scream into the pillow, like, how much longer must we do this? Okay. And we're like, I would just, I'm just just praying for the day when my kids have kids. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Everybody is now taking a collective exhale that if Dr. Kurt Thompson has to go into his room and and yell into his pillow, we're all okay. Right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's actually quite likely that when my daughter has the conversation with our neighbor, Michelle, Mm. that the revelation doesn't come if she hasn't first been having these conversations with her parents. I couldn't agree more. And so we as parents have to recognize that we have to introduce things. And in the same way, we as therapists introduce the idea of what is the new thing that you want to make? Mm. What is the beauty that wants to emerge? And of course, they're like, that's just... Like well, they're they're like my you're like my fifteen year old child. Like BS, right? Right. Right. Like what? Like I don't know what you, you whatever. But we say it, and we keep coming back to this question. And do they ever say <laughs> to interrupt? But do they ever just go? And I'm 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 not laughing at that. It's just, do they ever go? I don't know. But can you just fix this? Like we don't want to use that kind of energy. Like they don't even know they possess that energy. Because to me, it is such a foreign concept, the act of creation, rather than fixing a problem. Yeah. Right. And this is, although I I would say, yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's, again, it's like 
rearing children. Like you don't like there's a, you know, humans take 18 years or 36 years to leave the house. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> depending where you live. One of, the, one of those two choices. And the notion that it takes a while, right? I mean, yes. we take longer than any other biological organism mm. to move from birth to adulthood. And this process of introducing, and, and the same thing is true in the consultation room, that we are introducing an, this notion of creation to people in ways that are new. And, and this is where I think actually being um, f- fluent in integrating the biblical narrative with our work is really important. So mm-hmm. for instance, when we, when we yes. you know, when they, it's, I mean, if these, are, if these are people who are believers, I think it's, it's important to be able to appeal to the stories of the biblical narrative in such a way that we can say like, you know, creating is a really hard thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really, really hard thing. And nobody knows this more than God. Like God knows that creating things is, is it's really hard to do. If you're gonna make something, like there's a chance that like things could go dreadfully wrong. And he knows yes. exactly what that's like. And there's all kind of risk involved. And it's really, a, it's really frightening, which is why I'm far more likely to say, could you please just fix me? Than for me to have to begin to trust Mm. and take the risk of being hurt all over again. And so we say, yeah, we get this. And so we're going to, we don't expect you to, in your first painting class, create something that is going to be a Mako Fujimura. Correct. We expect you to do something that's that's going to look like your first painting class. Yes, it is. But I want you to be in the class. Mm. And and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Even if we're in our first painting class, even if we're not painting world-class work, we are practicing turning our attention in the direction that is more likely to see beauty as well as create it. And if I am practicing turning my attention in that way, what I'm doing is I I am helping the left brain to hold off on its hyperactivity. Yes. And I'm giving space for the right brain to kind of come back to its place of prominence in our lives, not throwing the left brain out by any scope of the imagination, Mm -hmm. but restraining it and pulling it back, you know, back from the brink of becoming the tyrant that it has become in so many of our lives, especially when it comes to shame, because shame occupy, you know, shame accesses and then takes advantage of my analytical capacity to say, well, here's why I'm, here's yes. why I'm not okay. And here's why I'm not okay. And here's why I'm not okay. And mm-hmm. so forth and so on. And you're not and enough I tell and this, you're not this and you're not that. And you're not this. All those things. Yep. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can I just take a moment and read a quote from the soul of shame, your second book, mm-hmm. because it's the one that rocked my world and it reads shame's presence is ubiquitous and inserts itself into the genetic material of the human storytelling endeavor. One way to envision shame is a personal attendant. This changed my life and it's going to change yours. So everyone listen. Imagine that you have a completely devoted attendant attuned to every sensation, image, feeling, thought, and behavior. And we talk about that so much in this community, the sensation, the image, the feeling, the thought, and the behavior. However, imagine that your shame attendant's intention is not good. It's not to care for you, but rather to infuse nonverbal and verbal elements of judgment into every moment of your life. The word attendant might it seem 
might at first seem counterintuitive as it usually applies to someone who has our best interest in mind. But this is how shame works. A wolf disguised in sheep's clothing. Hence, our shame attendant appears in language, feelings, sensations, and images that on the surface seem acceptable, common, and normal, but its purpose is anything but helpful. Can you please, I, and, and, doc, and Dr. I'm sorry, Kurt, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I've never heard anyone share the Genesis 3 story, the Genesis story like you. And what I, where I went with that quote in my own book was a scene out of the Game of Thrones, which I don't watch. But when I was writing my book, a friend of mine called and and I wasn't intending to really write a whole full chapter on shame. It ended up, I started telling my own story and it ended up being that. And she went, well, then you have to watch this short clip. It's a YouTube clip from Game of Thrones and it's Circe and she's going down the medieval practice of being shamed publicly. It was called the walk of atonement or the walk of that, whatever. And there's the scene, she's stripped totally, she shaves her head. She walks through this whole community and there's a, a nun behind her shaking a big nun bell. Like I went to Catholic parochial school. So they have those big, big bells and she's walking behind her. And at first I couldn't understand what she was saying, but she's just going shame, 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 shame. Well, I just wept, I fell down to the floor mm. And I thought, that's what you're talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was so thankful that the Holy mm. Spirit, because I'm very visual, kind of mm. gave me a visual and your words. And right then and mm. there, there was such an integration of those. Mm. So, Kurt, mm. how do we, you know, where do we go with that? How do we, how does someone, I have these questions and I just, I wanted to just throw them out. So I I wrote in, in the soul of shame, how on earth do I get to that place where I can shake off shame, where I can get rid of my shame attendance? How do I reconcile the resentment and the pain and the loss of being parented well by our mother or mom is everything or our fathers, but how do I then move forward Embrace Genesis 3. Where do I go? What do I do? How do I do this? In The Soul of Shame, we highlight the 12th chapter of Hebrews in the first two or three verses of Hebrews, Mm -hmm. of, of Hebrews 12. And I would say, and, and then I think, and, and so that that's, and we'll, we'll, I'll mention that in just a moment, but I think, and then I think I, I actually try to unpack that in a, what for me now has become an even more deeply, in, I, I'm, I'm more deeply impressed with and a more urgent sense mm. in the book I'm going to be releasing in September. Yes. And that has to do with this notion of how, in many respects, our attention to beauty actually is an answer to this question. Oh, thank you. God. But yes. never, but never outside the context of community. So I think that we find there are a couple of things about it in terms of like, what, what do we do? The, the first thing is that our listeners are going to hear this. And, and most of us, if we're listening to this, we're listening individually, like we're not listening in a group of 10 people in the room. And so I'm asking the question myself, what, not just what do we, but what do I do about this? And I would say that's the first thing that we want, first place we want to pause yes. because there is no, what am I going to do about this? It is going to be, what are we going to do about this together? This is what I love about your work. Shame and it's, effectiveness depends upon isolation. It depends upon me being cut off from you, me being cut off from parts of myself. 
Yes. To the degree that I'm actually able to tell my story more truly in a place where it's where I'm being heard and where empathy is going to be offered to me and also the demand is placed on me, right? So um, one of the things that we have to be careful about in today's culture is that we've gotten to a place where kind of like the general unspoken rule of social thumb is that if I am upset by something that you've done, I mean, if I'm upset, but yeah, that you've done to me, I'm only going to be okay, not just if you're able to be empathic with what I feel, but if you also agree with my assessment and my rendition of the story as it has been told. Yeah, And that's a problem. It is a problem, a big problem. So I do want to say that in the context of community, it's not just a matter of being empathic with people. And so the empathy makes them feel okay. And they can then go off and on to continue to tell the story about their life the way they are, however they want to. Mm-hmm. We do. And this is where we would say that the gospel is important because the gospel becomes a plumb line. Yes. The gospel becomes the true story into which we are, to which we are bringing our stories. Yes. And we are asking for the gospel's story to be spoken and lived out in the context of this community in which I can share that which is shaming for me. I can see in your eye contact, in your, I can hear in your voice, I can read in your body language, I can read forgiveness and receptivity. Mm-hmm. And I'm also going to be hearing from you, well, what do you now want to do? And what what are the things, where, where do we now want to go? Mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not just a matter of like, am I going to feel better? Because like, you know, if I'm a guy who I'm feeling ashamed because I'm like, I'm having an affair. Yes. And I feel ashamed about that. The culture might say, look, Kurt, what we really want you to do is not be ashamed. Hmm. Now, you can continue to have your affair. We just don't want you to be ashamed about it. Yeah. And I want to say, like, that's not what we're talking about here, because no. in that in that passage, the, one of the first things that the writer says, therefore, since we have before us such a great cloud of witnesses, let us first throw off yes. our sin mm-hmm. that so easily entangles us mm-hmm. to then run with perseverance the race set before us. Yes. So there is a sense in which I also come to this space with vulnerability in order to name what are the things about my story that I believe that are counter to the gospel story. Yes. Like those things I have to be yeah. able to name. Yeah. Well, like, you know, that like I'm, you know, I'm married to one woman, but I've fallen in love with somebody else. And I and I really want to like I feel bad, but like I just really I'm here to like make confessions so I don't have to feel bad. Yeah. But that's not really an option that I get with the gospel Mm-mm. because being happy is not what the gospel is about. Being beautiful is what the gospel is about. And that often comes in ways that we would never imagine or predict. No one would have predicted resurrection. Correct. No one would Without have predicted a doubt. that. Right. But because of resurrection, we look back at Good Friday <sighs> and we can say, mm. Mm. In all of our pathos, there's nothing more beautiful than a crucified Lord. Yeah. Because we know where this is going. Right. Yeah. Because of Easter. The cross is everything. Yeah, and here we are, right here on our pilgrimage towards Easter. Yeah. Right, and and Jesus is living out, like he's living out obedience. He's living out Mm -hmm. doing what his father wants, not what he wants. Thy will, not mine, be done. And so... Part of this then is, is that like this community is there to say like, 
for the man who's having the affair. Mm-hmm. The community is there to say, like, we get it. We get it how it is that things have happened in your marriage and you've got this thing going on for, you know, this other person. Like, we get it. And we validate, like, your experience. Like, yeah, I get it. The struggle of what yeah. perhaps is underneath I, his I need to all do that. Right. Right. And they're going to ask all kinds of questions. What are you hoping that this will do? All kinds of questions mm-hmm. that get to the hard deck of yeah. how it is that it's happening in the first place. Correct. And then, you know, when he wants to say, well, thanks for hearing me. And they say, great. Now we'd like to talk about how we're going to help you like work on your marriage. Yes. And of course, this might catch him a little off guard. It just might. Now we're going to hold right. you to some sense of accountability. Correct. Well, but but again, but, but again, again. You, I need, and, and he's like, I can't do that. I've, I've been in this marriage that's been barren for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're like, we get it. And we, we are going to be your source. We are going to be your wellspring mm-hmm. in order for God to do the work in you, to transform you into a person that six months from now, six years from now, you won't even recognize. Mm which is a very different way than I just really want to not feel ashamed so that I can go and take care of what I want to do desire and do what I want to do, which is kind of like the way that the world operates. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's how we operate. And so I think it's also important then for us to recognize people ask me this sometimes. Well, you talk about shame as if like, it's, it's all bad. Is there any shame that's good? And we, then we, we talk about how, well, when you read in second Corinthians seven, 10, this notion that there is, a godly grief that leads to repentance and there is an ungodly grief that leads to death. Yes. This notion that grief over my worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Right. There's this sense in which shame, Mm -hmm. right? This shame, Mm -hmm. like its intention is to get our attention. Correct. When we are in isolation, like the woman and the man were in the garden. Yes. Hiding. It's going to be, it's going to be a problem for me, right? Instead of the shame leading me to repentance, it Mm -hmm. leads me to further isolation and further disintegration. But ideally, like, as I tell people, like there are things that we do as human beings for which the proper response is one of shame. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and and I, and I need to be able to respond to that in the context of a community that can name this and say, yes, you're right, Kurt, you were wrong. I'm ashamed. And I'm going to and I'm going right. to feel bad. Ezekiel 16 talks about this notion when God says to Israel, "You must bear your disgrace." Yes. In order mm-hmm. for you to be aware of the of the gravity of your actions, not for you to grovel, mm-hmm. but for you to become aware of just how big a deal you are and that your actions yes. are really that big of a deal. Like you really are like a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Like if you were a little red wagon and something went wrong, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Mm-mm. But like you're not that. Right. And it's and a so, really big deal to the lineage that is following behind, right? Right. We have no idea mm-hmm. how much relational mm. capital we wield. Please. We have no idea. We just, I can we just really just, just want to take a pause because Kurt, oh my goodness. Because I'm sitting here and I'm thinking how on earth how on earth do we create cultures within our home? This is what I pound the table over. Cultures within our communities of faith. Hmm. How do we do this where we do grasp the gravity of the power of relationships? 
And we don't have time. I know that we don't. And I want to value your time. It's so valuable. But thank you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that I'm going to take that and spend some time with that, with my community as well. But Mm. I mean, that's everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when When Jesus. Mm, Go ahead. No, Mm. go ahead. Mm -mm. Mm. Go ahead. I've recently, recently, last six to nine months, really been kind of chewing on and just aware of this notion. So in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gets the end of the, you know, he, he's covered the Beatitudes and the passage reads, you're the light of the world. Yes. And who lights a lamp and sticks their lamp under a bushel? Mm-hmm. And I read that, I hear that. And I frequently think I can hear Jesus saying to me, you're the light of the world, don't screw it up. <laughs> like, like don't, don't be a whack job and put your light under a basket. You're so jacked, right? <laughs> but what if another way to hear him say this is, Janelle, mm-hmm. you are utterly illuminating. You're utterly illuminating. Mm-hmm. Like people have no idea what's coming for them when you walk in the room. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh gosh, um, what would it be like if every day before we leave our homes, we were reminded by the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. Hey, I just want you to know, there are people whose lives are gonna be changed today because you walk in the room where they're sitting. Oh, it's... And they're, they're gonna be changed because you're gonna be kind to them because they like they have no idea because you're just so illuminating. Can you imagine being told this? This is very no. different than what our shame attendant wants to tell us, but this is what the Holy Trinity is saying to us. Like you are my daughter, you are my son, and you're utterly illuminating. And so the whole thing about putting it under a bushel is like, well, I put it under a bushel because I pay more attention to my shame attendant than I do to Jesus. And we do. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what we, that's what I did. I'm now in my seventh decade. Yeah. And I only grasped that last year. Yeah, I get it. So if you had said that to me a year ago, I'm not sure I could be sitting here. Like I Mm. received that. And I can't, I mean, it's a really powerful moment for me personally, Kurt, mm. because mm. I actually believe you. That's mm. astounding mm. to me. Yeah, 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 right on. Astounding. Yeah. And that's where I want all, because I call that person a heart lifter. Mm-hmm. A heart mm-hmm. lifter is the person mm. who stands in the center of their family and walks through the hallways of their home. And that usually begins in Isaiah 61 in the ashes Mm, of the ancient mm, ruins. mm, mm. Someone has to come to this place Mm. like you being awakened in that medical conference because God met you where you Mm, were. mm -hmm, He mm -hmm. met you as a physician at a medical conference. Someone will be met in the deli, working at the deli, because those are my dear people that I love Mm. so much. People will be met in the aisles of wherever they are. Mm. And a heart lifter is a person who stands in the center of that Mm. ancient ruin and then says, no more, not on my watch. I am going to be the one who Mm -hmm. moves forward into my legacy and my lineage, who stops the shame attendant from ringing her bell or bells up. And shifts the shaming into gracing. And then, Kurt, as you bring it in your brilliant language that 
you're moving in your gift, that we are going to create something new today. Yeah. Yeah. Today's the day. Yeah. Right on. Thank you. You're most welcome. Pleasure. I don't know if I could keep going because I really just want to go weep. (laughs) I'm weeping for all of the voices and the faces and the people and the hearts of those that I know personally. And for those that I don't, please, I'm going to close with these beautiful words from, from Kurt, Dr. Thompson. We will be aware of, we will know God, others, and ourselves in the same manner we experience God's awareness of us. Listen to me here, my friends. I'm. This is our lean-in moment today. There were so many, but as we come to the end of our time together, I want you to hear this because I heard it in Kurt's voice when he spoke mm. that to me, but he's also speaking mm. that to you. There is no hint of shame mm. in God's gaze or voice. Mm. None. Mm. None. Our attention is drawn so irresistibly to him and how he is attending to us. That's that beauty that Kurt is telling us about. We're turning our gaze. We're fixing our gaze on God and how he now is attending to us because he is all good and beauty. Doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us or call us to obedience. It's when we attend to that that we lose all awareness of the shame that is for so long kept parts of us hiding in the dark. Mm. Toward mm. that end, we need to pay attention to the things that are the summation of our lives, faith, hope, and love. And mm. that's what today mm. is all about, my friends. Mm. Today is your day. It's your Kairos moment to shift your attention towards God towards the Trinity, towards beauty. And in that, you will begin to live your new creation, your new story. Thank you again, Kurt. May God expand your influence and give you more wisdom, more wisdom to offer a hurting body of Christ, a hurting world, but particularly a hurting body of Christ. Kurt, we need your voice to help us create communities that are safe, communities where we can be transparent and authentic and listen with empathy and offer belonging and love to others. Until next time, always remember, you, my friend, have value, worth, and dignity. Wow. Goodness. When... My interview with Dr. Kurt Thompson came to a close. I was so deeply moved and speechless. I was shaking, actually, because this message is one of great importance, especially in light of the hallelujah of Easter that we are celebrating right now. We are in the season of resurrection. We're in the season of hallelujahs. We are in the season of new birth. 
And it is my earnest prayer that this conversation that you heard between Kurt and myself will help you shift from a life of shame and a life of shame attendants ringing their bells in your ears and following you around and pushing you into isolation and into fear and into what if they know? What if somebody finds out the real me? What if somebody knows the real me? If they know the real me, they'll never love the real me. That was where everything changed for me when I understood grace. I pray that today, wherever you are, maybe you are in your car driving and you need to pull over to the side of the road and take a moment to open your hands and lift your eyes to the, to the heavens and pray for showers of lavish grace to fall upon you so that you can move forward into this beautiful new story, this resurrected life that Christ offers to you. Thanks for listening today. It was great having you here. For even more great content and resources, please join the Stronger Everyday online community at JanelleRairdon.com. Always remember, you, my friend, have value, worth, and dignity. And dignity.